aliens, pod people, and weirdos. This is Historical AF. My name is Natalie. I'm Kina. We are a librarian and historian delivering you the funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. And that is more booze. Boo Fatu. Booze. Boo. Yes, booze. Yeah. Wait. Here for the booze. <laughs> Get it? Booze and booze. Oh, there's a shirt, merch. Shameless plug. And apron. <laughs> and apron. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our new, our, our merch site, we have some new stuff. And then one of them is an artist apron. And I'm so fucking excited because it has a lot of pockets. And Oh, is it an artist one? That's yeah. what I thought. So cool. They have like a cooking one and now they have an artist one and it has like three pockets. Oh, I love pockets. I'm going to do an art. Yeah. Yeah, and there's like a new little pouch thing, and there's some new there's socks now. <laughs> yeah, Kina has a really awesome design that is is it basically a lot of our common phrases and different colors. Yeah, it's everything in the bingo card. Yes, kinda. I really like that one, and I like it. I think that would look good on the apron too. Mm-hmm. Anyways, we just Kina's been doing great knocking out all these awesome designs. But yeah. more importantly, booze. Yeah. <laughs> booze. Yeah, I'm really excited. I know I mentioned at the end of the last episode, I've been sitting on one of these stories for months. I discovered it and I was like, when can I talk about it? And now I can so excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a cool story. I'm so excited. But yeah, this is, I mean, this is just the epitome of her podcast we drink and we talk about history so let's talk about the history of drinks boom and be super sleep deprived yeah she's very sleepy it happens netflix is a bitch you know it just sucks the sleep right out of you (laughs) i know well it didn't help that when i was sick the other week it totally fucked up my sleep pattern i was sleeping all day i was up all night Um, and i haven't been able to readjust back entirely so I've been staying up till about two every night and it just because I can't fall asleep. And then uh, last night I was making stuff for a an art display and I was watching the show. And next thing I know, it was 3.30 in the morning. And I am a person when I go to sleep, I go to sleep deep. So I have a point of no return. And <laughs> I do. And so if it's about 3.34, I, I'm like, I just can't go to bed because I'll oversleep and I'll miss work. Mm. So it's just point of no return. Like, all right, we're here. Just might as well stay up the rest of the night watching the show. Oh, man. It was good. It was fine. I probably sound my drunkest. <laughs> so enjoy. Oh, that's rough. All is well. And... I'm sorry if I interrupted you a minute ago about the stuff. I was just excited about your story. <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, let's jump into it. I'm excited. So. Okay. I'm going to do the one I'm really excited about first. Remember. Okay. So mine is morbid, y'all. And granted, I actually did not go as dark as I could have. But whatever you think is going to be the most entertaining to make sure we're we're staying up <laughs> at the end. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> yes, the end is funny, so we're we'll be fine. Okay, Hopefully. cool. I mean, it's not the funniest thing ever, but I think it's funny. But I'm a nerd, so that's not really saying much. <laughs> so historical AF. 
man, it's a, uh, it's a story I heard about in San Antonio and I went there and heard the story and I've been freaking the fuck out because I want to tell people, but I was like, I gotta <laughs> save this for the podcast. So here it is. So it's the Pearl Brewery in downtown San Antonio. Man, such a badass story. So before the Pearl Brewery took center stage as San Antonio's destination it is today, the spot was merely background noise to a story about love, murder, beer, mistresses, and three women named Emma. We have three Emmas? Three Emmas. <laughs> okay. Popular name. It is. Uh, <laughs> it really, this story has it all. Oh, I just love it. So it started back in 1902 when a German immigrant named Otto Collier left his job as a manager at the Lone Star Brewery to take the helm of the Pearl Brewing Company. He had big plans to turn the Pearl into one of the biggest breweries in the country. He was pretty qualified. After leaving Germany, he settled in St. Louis where he learned all the things you need to know about beer. And by the time he moved to San Antonio, he was a force to be reckoned with. And it was not long before he became president of the Brewing Association. His expertise in beer trade, coupled with his successful investments, made him a very respected man and a very rich one. In fact, he was known as one of the wealthiest men in the Southwest until his untimely death in 1914. (laughs) But this isn't about him, because other than he just can't keep it in his pants. This is about his wife, Emma Collier. For the sake of clarity, will be known as Emma One from now oh, on. Oh, good. I was about to say, can it be Emma Oon? <laughs> Emma Oon. <laughs> Emma One, also a native German, was right by her husband's side through all of his successes, even helping him run the business at the brewery. That was until 1910 when she was in a devastating car accident that confined her to bed. And there's pics of the car accident, and it's bad. And I will have it on the website and the social media. But she, like, basically plowed into a tree, and the car is, like, wrapped around the tree. It's like 1900s. These cars didn't have safety precautions. It was bad. So her condition was so bad that she required full-time care. So Otto sought to hire a home nurse to look after her. It wasn't long before he found a woman for the job, another German immigrant, Named Emma. <laughs> Emma Dose. Okay. So now we have Emma too. Her name is Emma Dumpke. So Emma too. She was in her 20s and she went to work for them. She was described as petite. She had sparkling hazel eyes. And it wasn't long before Otto was all like charmed by her and decided, hey, you, you're going to do me. So then you can keep this. <laughs> And they started a romantic affair. And mind you, he was in his 50s. So, ew. <sighs> Maybe not the 50s. 50s with his wife bedridden. And then being like, hey, nurse. Hey. Yeah. It's just shady. It's just not classy. You need to keep it classy, not trashy. The sad part about this is that he's extremely wealthy. He's extremely powerful. And like, Emma, too, had no choice but to go along with the affair because she was an immigrant. She had no money. There's nothing she could do. So she's kind of trapped in this relationship. But then there's a plot twist. <laughs> Not long after Otto took Emma, too, as his mistress, she invited her close friend to come to San Antonio to live with her. Emma, too's friend also happened to be a nurse, 
also happen to be from Germany and also happen to be named Emma. <laughs> Yay. Emma Ber- Burgermeister, which we will call Emma Three. <laughs> I was like, that was such a mouthful of a last name. Uh, Emma Three was also beautiful. She stood tall with blonde hair and a certain charm, and it made her irresistible. So uh, Otto was like, you're my girlfriend now, too. So he bought them both a small cottage in San Antonio, which is apparently still standing. And uh, there was only one catch to this whole thing. He was nervous that Emma 2 was going to leave him. So he put everything in Emma 3's name. So if she left, she got nothing. That way, he thought she would never leave. He gave the two women a monthly allowance as well. $125 for Emma 2 and $50 for Emma 3. So we know who, which one is his favorite. Yeah. You know, you think maybe, I know how you just said we found all of our Emmas. And, but it'd be funny, though, if he had picked them and it's just so he didn't have to remember their names. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from the outside, it seemed that Otto was doing the gentlemanly thing by providing some security to his mistresses. But <laughs> Otto was a brilliant investor. It's how he made his fortune. And a good investor always looks out for his best interests. So he basically set them up, gave them money. Everything could be taken away so they couldn't leave him. So it's all very shady. And Otto's interests were not surprising in the least. Why have one Emma when you can have two? Better yet, why have two Emmas when you can have three? (laughs) (laughs) With the arrival of Emma 3, Otto's Emma love triangle, or I guess love square, was finally completed. But I told you this was about murder, so it doesn't go very well for one of them. (laughs) I'm not with one. By 1913, Otto's leery feelings about Emma 2 proved true. She found love with a man named Doshel, which is a fun name, and ran off with him to St. Louis where they were wed. Though he had his suspicions about Emma 2 for some time, that did not make her abrupt departure any easier. He kind of lost his shit. In his grief, he flung himself even harder at Emma 3, upping her allowance, taking her on trips, even proposing marriage. Though she claimed to love Otto, because she had no choice. She was going to lose everything. The marriage proposal brought everything to a kind of a screeching halt for her. She could not allow Otto to abandon Miss Collier like that, because she was fucking bedridden. And his wife. Because he's <laughs> forgotten he has one of those. <laughs> There's so, so much wrong happening right now. <sighs> but he doesn't take rejection lightly. Not long after Emma 3 turned Mr. Collier down, he took another trip to Germany, only this time he didn't invite her. And then she didn't hear from him for a very long time, even after he returned to San Antonio. So then she was like, oh, fuck. Because remember, everything in her life depends on him. It quickly became apparent that Otto had moved on to a new flame, but with all her security tied up in the old man, Emma 3 gave one last fighting shot at getting what she deserved. <laughs> da, da, da. When she got in touch with Otto to meet up, he agreed, but in one condition. He demanded that Emma 3 meet him at a bar in the red light district of San Antonio and that she bring all her papers. Essentially, he wanted her house papers, everything that he paid her, credits, all that stuff, and anything that she could use to blackmail him. Mm-hmm. It was then she realized how much she was in trouble. <laughs> Emma 3 began to fear for her own safety. In a desperate attempt to cover herself, she called the one person she knew could protect her from Otto. Emma too. She knew that he would do anything for her because he was obsessed with her before she got married. 
So Emma too was like, got you. She came down from St. Louis and she came to meet her. Emma too needed little convincing. Oh, I already said that. Uh, by the time she got there, Emma three had come up with a plan. Instead of meeting Otto in the red light district, she wanted to meet him in her own cottage. So stunned by the sudden reappearance of his former mistress, Otto agreed to the change of plan and met at the cottage. Just before 5 p.m. on November 13, 1914, Otto drove his horse and buggy <laughs> to the little house in San Antonio and hurried inside. When he entered the home, Emma two was there in the parlor, but she told Otto that he should go and see Emma three first, who was lying down in her bedroom with a headache. Obediently, Otto agreed to do so, and moments later, everything erupted. Just minutes after five o'clock, a neighbor heard gunshots. When she ran outside, Emma two was in the front yard screaming for help. The police were called to the scene, and with a pack of noisy neighbors, they broke down the door and entered into the madness. Accounts of what was seen... When the police enter the cottage ferry, some say Emma was lying over Otto covered in blood. Others say that she was found with her head in the lap of a neighbor who arrived before the police, but nobody really knows. So the crime scene looked like a small army. There was a 25 caliber revolver on the nightstand, an open case knife on the floor, and a 32 caliber automatic, the official mor- murder weapon, like lying in a pool of blood. So she came prepared. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> One of these is going to kill you. The one thing for certain, however, was he was dead as a doornail laying on the floor with a broken neck and three bullets in his head. And <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Sorry, this is almost like Rasputin's death. Good Lord. Yes. Oh, just like the, that, the richest man in the South was dead. Emma <laughs> 3 was immediately taken to the hospital be, to be treated for a gash on her wrists and bruises on her neck. Some witnesses claim they saw nothing. So, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just picturing like I had an overreaction. Like, <laughs> if you watch The Office, then you will understand that reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From the hospital, the police escorted Emma Three directly to the county jail. Although she wouldn't stay there very long, she was only there a few nights before an anonymous person posted her seven thousand five hundred dollar bail. Mm. Still, a grand jury indicted her for murder, but suddenly she was nowhere to be found. However, State Senator Carlos B., who was acting as her lawyer, offered only one excuse for her absence, that the murderess in question had abruptly left for Germany to fulfill her patriotic duty to aid the wounded soldiers of war. And everybody was like, that checks out. That's fine. (laughs) Nobody looked for her. So the problem was she never left the country. Instead, she went to New York, where she stayed three years until 1917, when she decided that she was ready to come face her court sentence, and she went to stand trial. By then, she had already arranged for the former Texas governor to handle her case, so she was a very smart woman. In January of 1918, Emma III made her return to the Alamo City to face her charges, Prosecution had prepared a foolproof argument as they convinced one of Texas' first female attorneys, Florence Raymer, to testify that Emma Three had shared her plane to, plane, plan to kill Otto. There was only one problem. On the day of the trial, Florence Raymer was nowhere to be found. In fact, she had fled in the middle of the night <laughs> and moved to Los Angeles. I think there was a conspiracy afoot. I think she got paid off. <laughs> 
Uh, Raymer invoked attorney-client privilege and denied everything. That was also one of the last courtrooms she ever saw. After the trial, she left the town for Hollywood, where she kicked off a acting career as Florence Bates. She has 80 acting credits on IMDb, including the 1952 Les Miserables, and she guested on I Love Lucy and Dick Tracy. Those were the three things that I recognized. Oh, so yeah, the name actually sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the courtroom was rife with contradiction. Some people said Otto was coming at Emma 3 with a pistol and going after Emma 2, Emma, Emma 2 in the parlor. Emma 3 even tried to shoot herself in the head, but somehow missed. The only thing confirmed was that Otto was dead. Nonetheless, after four years of suspense, the trial only lasted one week, including the Raymer delay. On January 22nd, 1918, the all-male jury found Emma not guilty. All charges against her were dropped, while each juror lined up to shake hands and congratulate her on as being a newly free woman. Man, the 1900s, early ones. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. Bless their hearts. Oh, bless their hearts. Just one year after the trial had wrapped, Emma Three married one of the jurors and they moved to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Story is so good. However, they soon moved back to San Antonio where they settled down in the same cozy cottage that she murdered the fuck out of Otto. <laughs> <sighs> it's all a mess. However, one person truly came out on top in all this, and it's the OG Emma, Emma One. She miraculously rose from her bedridden state and got straight to business. By the time Emma Three stood trial in 1918, Miss Collier had achieved Otto's dream and turned the Pearl Brewery into the largest brewery in Texas. Even- <laughs> That's awesome. It gets better. Even oh, during the Prohibition years, Emma managed to keep the doors open by switching to soft drinks and ice cream. While other breweries were shutting down, Emma kept her entire workforce employed. Brilliantly. <laughs> And she also invested a million dollars of her own money into the business. So when the stock market crashed and the depression hit, they were fine. She was able to keep everybody employed. Everybody's making shit. Didn't touch them at all. That's good. She's brilliant. Yeah. Bam. So the day prohibition list lifted, Emma rolled out those barrels and the good stuff started flowing in Texas again. So they were ready to start making beer the second pro. They were probably making it before, but they were yeah. able to start serving beer publicly. Publicly. Openly. Everything ready to start serving beer the second prohibition lifted, and nobody else had employees. So she had. Yeah, they were still in recovery. At the time, women couldn't even vote. Emma was single handedly running the most successful company in a male dominant industry in the entire state. Ironically, the repeal of Prohibition helped the U.S. out of the Depression. And by then, she had established an advantage over all the other breweries. With her workforce already in place, it was a quick turnaround for her business to return to its beer brewing roots. And it took years for anybody else to catch up. In addition to working at the brewery, she was also a social icon and philanthropist. Since the Colliers had no children, she invited nieces and nephews to live with her in San Antonio. She hosted spirit soirees in the Laurel Heights home, which included a ballroom and a bowling alley. She also donated 11 acres of land to the city to honor her late husband with the stipulation that alcohol consumption has to be permitted. I mean, it works for her. Like she sells beer. Like you don't get my money unless you let people drink. So the story of why San Antonio was wet, everything you can have beer everywhere. It's because this lady, 
At the end of Prohibition, she said, quote, everyone has been drinking booze for years. Now, maybe they will drink something that is good for them and have good times like they used to have in the park. (laughs) To honor her, the posh hotel that is there today was erected from the old brewery and assumes her name. It has kept all the signature parts of the brewery, but is now a luxury hotel. So if you walk in like the lobby, it has the giant like engine room stuff. So it's a mixture of luxury and like the brewery. It's the coolest place. And today in the bar inside the Emma Hotel is a drink called the Three Emmas. It has pearl beer, <laughs> rose cordial, amatayido, sherry, botanist gin, grapefruit, and lemon juice. And it makes up this infamous cocktail. And then the hotel <laughs> says, quote, one is great, but three will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the made up with all the Emmas. Oh, man, it's the coolest place. It is. It has a restaurant. It's like a southern, uh, like southern specialty. Oh man, it's so good. I had the best like fried chicken I've ever had in my life. Oh, it's so good. But it's like a fancy, like luxury place. Oh, it's so good. I can't remember <laughs> what it's called now. I'm blanking what the restaurant's called, but yeah, it's the coolest place. So the Pearl District is where this is at, and. Uh, Whitney, no, not Whitney Houston, shit, Cher, Cher recently tweeted that this was the best hotel she ever stayed at. That's impressive. Yeah, Yeah. it's so cool. So if anybody is in San Antonio or in Texas or visiting and wants to come have a 3MS cocktail with me, I'm down. (laughs) I haven't tried it yet. Yes. Let it kill you. Emma's kick ass. But yeah, as soon as I heard the story, I was like, how is this not a movie? Holy shit. <laughs> I do remember you mentioning in a past episode, like, that that lady was able to make it wet and walk mm-hmm. around. But I'm very glad that you were able to share the whole story this time. Yeah. This is a wild ride. I know. I just love the thing. Yeah. make it better is if, like, somehow there's, like, a fourth Emma. Like, somehow. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you even, like, oh, man, that's just... <sighs> It was crazy. Wild ride. <laughs> so I guess be careful, guys. Be careful of her, those uh, Emmas. <laughs> I can get more than two than you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Alright, so like I said, mine is morbid. This one, it was hard for me to do morbid. Like When I think about alcohol stuff, it it makes me sad. It hits too close to home with Heather dying by driver. Just all the ways alcohol can fuck up your life. And because as fun as alcohol is and like it can taste good, it can be fun. It, it is. It can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about just some of the basic health risks of chronic heavy drinking. Because I just think it's interesting. Like if you live this lifestyle, what can what can happen? <laughs> Sorry. Maria's like, I can get dark real quick, huh, Nat? <laughs> I do. Welcome to Sleep Deprived Natalie, y'all. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I've been thinking about this since the booze thing, and I and I've had morbid, so like it just is it's a little too close for me. Same. Yeah. Alcoholic <laughs> fathers and yeah, like my dad's a fucking asshole. <laughs> I, I haven't talked to him in Three years? Anyways. Uh, top of the list, of course, is liver damage. And 
We have to be careful of that. And this is, you get your fatty liver and everything. And this is, of course, years of abuse. This isn't like you're in a one and done thing and you're just down and out. This is years of abuse of heavy drinking. Heart disease, of course. Um, one thing I didn't know that alcohol can affect is anemia. Oh. Yeah. And this is when, of course, your body doesn't make enough healthy red blood cells to move oxygen around. So that can that's how it gives you ulcers and inflammation and other problems. So too much booze may also make you more likely to skip meals, which can shortchange the iron. Like, man, I didn't even think about that. Next is cancer, but I feel like everything causes cancer. <laughs> so I'm like, that's not a surprise. <laughs> everything causes cancer. Seizures. Long-term alcohol abuse may raise your chances for epilepsy. And alcohol withdrawal, of course, after heavy drinking causes you, causes seizures. Gout. This is, of course, a form of arthritis and results from, of course, painful buildup of uric acid in the joints. And that's, of course, by eating too much food with high in chemicals and red meats, shellfish, and, of course, alcohol. Especially beer and liquor. So I think wine is a little bit better for you. Mm-hmm. But be careful with that beer and liquor. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this yeah. is another one that kind of surprised me. And that's, of course, infections. Heavy drinking can hamper your immune cells from fighting off viruses and bacteria. I don't think I was aware of like how bad it could be. But it can really, of course, harm your liver, which is the most reviving organ we have. Mm-hmm. And it plays an important role to your immune system by making antibacterial proteins. So, healthy liver, y'all. Sleep. It can make you develop sleep apnea and snoring so bad, of course, that you wake yourself up <laughs> or you just choke. Oh, yeah, that can be really dangerous. Yep. Some people stop breathing completely. Osteoporosis was another one. It can weaken your bones. This is especially if you're a teen, like so a young, kind of underdeveloped person. Uh, if you heavily drink, this will affect your bone structure, especially when you get older. So you might think you're having fun, partying, stuff like that. And then when you hit 45, you're going to like break a hip, mm-hmm. basically. So I know none of this kind of seems crazy, but I guess it's just like, please watch out for this. And I know we're a drinking show and we have fun, but honestly, this is like the only time I drink is the show. I might drink a little bit other than that, but just be careful. Protect your bodies, protect yourself. Yeah. Drive safe. (sighs) Drinking like at long term. Drinking can do just wild shit. I remember when I was in psychology classes, they talked about this thing called Korsakoff syndrome, where heavy drinking over a long period of time burns holes into your frontal lobe, and that's where your memories are held. So your brain is like a giant file cabinet. So if you're trying to retrieve something, it's just going to pull stuff. So eventually you have so many holes in your brain that you start pulling false memories. So that's why a lot of alcoholics will say, like, I know this happened, but it didn't because their brain's trying to overcompensate. So when they were talking about that, I'm like, oh, my God, my dad has that. And then I was like, oh, that's awkward. Verbal outburst in the middle of class. But, you know, <laughs> my dad totally had that. But, yeah, my dad also died of a blood clot 
and that's an alcoholic thing. He had a the oh shit, what's the thing in the in your lungs? Plur shit. The blood clots in the lungs. I forgot what it's called. Anyway, he had those. Yeah. Alcohol is bad. And he just popped in my head. My dad had pulmonary embolisms. That's how I got sober. I never knew my dad sober my entire life. And then he was in the hospital for pulmonary embolisms. And they forced him through detox with, like, the drugs and stuff. That was the only time I met him sober. But uh, eventually one of the blood clots dislodged and went to his brain and he died. It sucks. By the time he was in the hospital for the pulmonary embolisms, the doctors told me they're like, he has probably liver cancer. It looks like he has prostate cancer. It looks like he has this cancer. But like he doesn't have much time. So by the time he finally and he was uh, 59, he started drinking at 14. So by the time 59, his whole body was shutting down. It was yeah. it was rough. Yeah, I don't know if my dad has done enough damage yet to his body. Because when he actually he was married to my mom, she wouldn't let him drink, especially in the house. But after they divorced, that changed. Mm-hmm. Most of the time he was fine when I was around, but there were weekends that he would disappear to a bar and like not come back mm-hmm. and leave me home alone. Granted, I was like 11 or 12 or whatever. So, I mean, I was... I was a bit aged that it was okay to leave me home alone, but he wouldn't come home until like 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. So he would leave at noon and not come back until early in the morning. Yeah. And I only saw him on the weekends. So it's like, this is the only time you see me and you're not seeing me. Man, he called me once drunk and threatening to commit suicide and... He had left a voicemail, and the next morning, I heard the voicemail. When I called him, he said everything was fine, but he blacked out, and the gun was jammed. Oh, um, I'm so sorry. Uh, I mean, you laugh at it now, or you just roll off, but <laughs> yeah. I was like 14, and I'm like, you are just such a fucking asshole. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, like I said, I think part of me, like, I know some people, like my sister, won't drink because I'm a dad. And then for me, I'm like, I don't want him to control my life. Like, I don't want what he did and how he acted and what happened to him keep me from <laughs> enjoying alcohol. That was one. As Yeah, my dad is a fucking asshole. But it wasn't all bad, though. Like... He knew he was, it's like he knew, he, he thought he was like God's creation, like, like his gift for us. But he also knew that he was a terrible person. Like he had like this weird, almost self-aware, almost not. Mm-hmm. And so was it when I was a kid growing up, especially like early elementary, he would always tell me to not be like him or very like reverse psychology, but like, like, are you failing school yet? Or something like that. But, and it's funny to say it sounds negative, but he would do it in a jokingly way where I know he was wanting me to get the best grades I could. Mm-hmm. Like he was just trying to use this reverse psychology and basically kept saying, don't be like him. And that has happened. I'm not sure how he agrees with it, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a, 
It's a wild way to grow up like that. But I mean, for my thing, my dad was always an alcoholic, but he didn't get really bad until I was older. And as soon as I left for college, it got really bad, like really bad. But he tried to hide it. But I didn't really. It was so stupid because when I'm a kid, I just thought it was normal. And then when you start staying the night with people and you're like, why is your dad not weird? And then it dawned on me. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Why doesn't your dad act like this? What? Why doesn't your dad pass out at like five? Isn't that normal? (laughs) Well, I mean, for that, I am thankful that mom didn't let him drink until until they divorced. And so I was 11, 12 when they divorced. Uh, and it just hit hard. He just went crazy. Or not crazy. He just went wild. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times it's like if they have something keeping them from drinking. And then the second that thing's gone, it just derails yeah. to the point. He, he, he just hit his midlife crisis hard. Okay. Like convertible. He has a convertible. And which is nice. When I got to drive it a little bit when I was 16, that was fun. But uh, yeah, it just hit hard. Getting divorced and then being in his what late forties, fifties. He's like he's about sixty now, and yeah, he just hit it hard. And I don't know if he quite ever bounced back from it. I mean, he got remarried, and then she was kind of strict with him on the alcohol, but that didn't really stop him either. And my favorite part though is when she would complain about her ex husband and some of the things he would do. I'm like, do you know that that is my father, that is the man you have just married. Like you're describing him. Yeah. I'm like, but you do you, man. You do you. She was nice, very different from me, but nice. And I think they're divorced now, so oh well. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, y'all. We can cut this out. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a therapy session. Caffeine's kicking back in. I'm starting to get slightly less punchy now, but just as open. Next thing I'll be like, I love you, man. <laughs> I love you too. Oh, yeah, my dad was sober six months before he died. And it and I'm like for some part of it, I'm incredibly thankful because a lot of people that grow up with parents that are alcoholics never get a apology. And when mm. my dad got sober and he was in the hospital, he my dad never admitted he was an alcoholic my whole life. He would get mad if I because his dad was an alcoholic, and anytime I'd be like, you're just like your dad, he'd be like, bowed up on me and stuff. But he admitted that he was an alcoholic, and he apologized, and I'm like, that never happens. It really sucks, though, because I would never had met him sober until six months before he died. But thank him for that time. Yeah, better to have a little bit than nothing at all. That's true. And I, it, it reminds me, like, a lot of me, like, a lot of the weird parts of me is my dad like my dad was a good dude he was just sick and he had a really shitty life and he just they yeah. always say people with parents with addicts and stuff like you have two choices you either become them or you become the opposite of them and yeah. luckily all of us on my side we all became the other side and that yeah i totally agree with that yeah. i want people to try to fight it or make the best habits that they can. But yeah, my grandfather, so his dad, Martel, was an alcoholic too. My dad will probably argue with that, but that's because he was always drunk. And so like he played it off enough to where like it became normal, but he was just constantly drunk and he was mean. And so my dad, my uncle Mike, they have that same kind of 
mean sense of humor that only they are laughing. And um Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're completely bad people. Like I said, no. my dad did a lot of good things, but just the bad outweighed the good. And I always joked my dad was an amazing doctor, but a shitty human being. <laughs> like he was he did so many good things as a doctor, but just as a dad. But I don't think he knew in hindsight, I don't think he thought he deserved love. And so he always was kind of an asshole because I think he thought that we all hated him and that it didn't matter. Because I think he was just, I don't know. He was really, he was really damaged. <laughs> Man, well, I'm glad you said that because, yeah, with all the fun and games alcohol, there is a lot of consequences. Yeah. Just be yes. careful, people. I remember once I spoke at a mad meeting and like a lot of the people there scoffed and stuff. And because, you know, you think it's not going to happen to you, like drunk driving in any way. Mm-hmm. You're, you're fine or your friend's fine. But it comes when you least expect it. Heather yeah. was only 21. And it's weird that I'm now seven years older than she has ever been. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I still look exactly like her. Yeah. It's weird. I'm a clone. It's probably actually what it is. Um but I remember at the meeting, I spoke a lot about just taking care of our community because that's one way to take care of ourselves. You know, call an Uber, have someone to have one beer while you have five. <laughs> <laughs> and then next time you trade, you know, mm-hmm. just watch yourself eat a lot. While you, if you're going to drink heavy, just be careful. Know your limits. It's all yeah. Happen. And if you feel like you have a problem, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's so many resources out there to help you. Oh, yeah. It's so easy. We're going through it right now, actually getting help. And And it's so easy to slip into that. I think the definition of alcoholism is like, what, like five drinks for women a week and like uh, eight for men, I think. I'm probably wrong. I know it's, it's not that much, but like every week or whatever, but... Like I said, it's one of those things, I'm such a weird person. Like, I like to drink, I like to go to beer places, breweries, and have fun and stuff. But I think a lot of it is just, that's my way of coping with. I don't want my past to control me and keep me from doing things and making me feel like, feel guilty or feel shamed or. (laughs) I have this memory of my dad, um letting me smell one of his drinks, like one of his beers. And to me, alcohol still smells bad unless it's like a margarita or something very flavored. <laughs> and I remember smelling it and you smell like pure beer or alcohol. And I just pretended that I fainted and, and felt dead. <laughs> <laughs> I was like 13. And I was like, whoa, I just fell down. And we had like a fake rose nearby and I just quickly snagged it and then had it <laughs> over me. <laughs> and dad thought it was the funniest thing. He's like, he's like, your opinion will probably change when you get older. I'm like, and it has. <sighs> oh man. So we're going to end this on funny. Yes. <laughs> it's not like, it's not like funny, huh? It's just funny. Like, huh? That's funny. Like don't need therapy after it. Like, we just <laughs> went for good Lord. No, none of these are depressing. <laughs> So I'm going to end it on times alcohol changed history. Great. (laughs) So the first one is George Washington and other early American politicians bought votes 
with booze. <laughs> As politicians, it's important to know what your constituents like. When it came to George Washington and his fellow Virginians, the answer was alcohol. Early in his career, Washington used all of his campaign funds to buy enough liquor to convince voters to elect him to the House to purchase in 1858. Perhaps if the American colonists didn't have such a taste for the hard stuff, George would have lost his early election, faded to obscurity, and America would have missed out on electing one of its best presidents. And we'd probably be a monarchy because he was the only one that wanted to give up the presidency after two terms. So. Let's throw that in there, too. <laughs> this, this practice of exchanging liquor for votes carried on all the way until the 18th Amendment banned alcohol in 1920. Damn. Sorry. Right? <laughs> until then, you were just as likely to see a barroom brawl as you were to see a ballot on voting day. So, man, nobody offered me booze to vote yesterday. I feel gypped. Hmm. <laughs> I had to vote absentee, so I didn't even get a sticker this time. Very sad about it. <laughs> the next one, Alexander the Great sacked Persepolis in a drunken rage. <laughs> Alexander the Great is a well-known, not just for his love of conquering, but also for his love of alcohol. His passion for booze came to a head in 330 BCE upon the arrival in Persepolis. After he and his men conquered the city, he resolved during the night of or resolved during a night of drunken debauchery to burn Persepolis to the ground. This was a strange, clearly alcohol-induced decision, considering that the city now belonged to him. <laughs> <laughs> In those flames, future historians lost all access to massive amounts of knowledge about ancient Persepolis and Persia. In a case of karmic retribution, a recent study claims that Alexander may have been snuffed out by a glass of toxic wine. So, he maybe karma he died of alcohol because his alcohol rage killed all the knowledge that is karma uh, abraham lincoln's bodyguard left his post at ford's theater for a drink at the saloon i bet he got fired <laughs> oh man that'd be a rough one it'd be interesting if they actually then banned alcohol right after that yeah. So on the night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, John Parker was assigned the job of protecting the president on his trip to Ford's theater. After the president and his wife settled in, Parker accepted an invitation from Lincoln's footman and coachman to go for a drink at the Star Saloon next door. We'll never know for sure what it would happen if he would have declined the invitation. Perhaps John Wilkes Booth wouldn't have been able to charm his way past the presidential security as a famous actor. However, at least one person blamed Parker for the death of the president. Mrs. Lincoln. She was pissed. I would have been pissed, too. I know. It's, it's like you have one job. Yeah. I was just staying there with the president. It's also wild to think, like, even today, the president has several secret service. To think that Abe Lincoln had one dude. That just blows my mind. And back then, there was even, like... More of a chance. Numbers, but it feels like then there's like even more gunfights. I could be wrong entirely because I mean population ratio, let alone, is probably more now. But uh when I think about all the bar saloon fights and and gunfights and everything. I don't well, know. I would imagine Lincoln had to have known that he had a target on his back. I mean, the whole war yeah. was such a volatile time for the country and he knew he pissed off the South, so I'd be paranoid as fuck if I were him. I would have all kinds of And I would have gone anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Wild. He oh 
No. The Russians lost a war because they were too drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Despite attempts by Ireland, Germany, and France, no nation is more closely associated with a specific alcohol than Russia is with vodka. Russians put this to the test during the Russo-Japanese War when they proved that they could not forego their favorite libation long enough to win a war. Russian newspapers reported... (laughs) After the hostilities, that soldiers were too drunk to fight and provided easy targets for the Japanese forces. In 1905, Russia wow. accepted less than ideal treaty terms and negotiation bonkered by Theodore Roosevelt. Even Tsar Nicholas himself blamed alcohol for the country's embarrassing performance. He banned alcohol in the lead up to World War I in the hopes that that wouldn't happen again. Spoiler alert, things didn't end well for Tsar or for the alcohol ban, which ended in 1925, which... You know, we've we've talked about a uh, old Nicholas when we talked about Rasputin. It uh, <laughs> it didn't end well. <laughs> it didn't end well at all. The Borgias maintain their power thanks to poison wine. I mean, this one's not really funny, but I think it's funny because they're like freaking popes. That's crazy. Our family, <laughs> like, it's, it's about is why it's funny. For family obsessed with holding and keeping the papal seat, the Borgias. Method was anything but moral. They were an Italian family who reigned during the Renaissance. The aristocratic clan counted two popes among their ranks. More importantly, the Borgias are known as one of the most power-hungry families in history. Their weapon of choice was dispatch or weapon of choice for dispatching enemies, poison-laced wine. Jesus. In a poetic twist of fate, some historians believe that it was the poison bottle of wine brought to the table by accident that ultimately took the life. Of most of the family. <laughs> oh. oh, man. That's crazy. <sighs> this is not really funny. It's just interesting. The temperance movie act, movie movement actually advanced women's rights. Looking back on history, we tend to regard temperance movements with scoffs and eye rolls, but at least temperance organizations provided a training ground for many of the most famous feminists to hone their activism. The first wave of feminism was born out of these temperance movements with suffragists like Susan B. Anthony cutting her teeth on temperance causes. It can be argued that movements like this and the anti-slavery movement, both of which contain large number of female activists, taught these women how to organize and they took what they learned and ran with it and tried to get the vote. But I would like to also just point it out there like Susan B. Anthony was kind of a dick to black women. So... <laughs> Like, we always talk about how she's, like, the end-all be-all to, like, suffragettes. But, like, she's, like, they're not, you're not welcome here. Like, it it was not a good time. History likes to pinpoint the good things. And I'm, like, eh, you're still an asshole. I mean, you're cool. I I mean, you did one thing, but you were really an asshole to other people. So, without the Whiskey Rebellion, political parties as we know them today wouldn't exist. The Whiskey Rebellion played an important part in the birth of the America we know today. When thousands of colonists came together to protest a new tax on whiskey, the rebellion met the iron hand of the new U.S. government, led by Commander-in-Chief himself, George Washington. The breakup of the rebellion proved to colonists that the younger government had the power to defend itself against uprisings and laid the groundwork for a prosecution of treason. Perhaps more interestingly, the whiskey tax was one of the issues pushed by the anti-federalists and moved to help spawn the division of ideology that created America's first separate political parties. And we kind of talked about the Whiskey Rebellion on the birthday episode. 
Is that yeah. plantation? Yes. Like I vaguely remember it. Yeah. He ran away because he got like he was in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> if he went back over there, Washington was gonna have his head, so he ran away to Louisiana. <laughs> Big bad George Washington. Beer inspired the agricultural revolution and basically started civilization. I mean, no big deal. (laughs) Beer enthusiasts everywhere will be happy to know that beer may have been the catalyst for civilization as we know it. According to historians, the original reason that ancient farmers began to grow barley more than 10,000 years ago was not to create bread, but to create beer. (laughs) This shift from hunter-gatherer to farming marked the beginning of an agricultural revolution, a period that gifted modernity with little things like the wheel, irrigation, and the plow. Nah, it's not Wi-Fi. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but say that. Oh, I just love the like. Throughout time, alcohol has been like the main reason behind most choices. Like it this just shows, like how shitty we so are. <laughs> like even making good decisions, it's for like bad intentions or. Oh, yeah. Or, or, or like Susan B. Anthony, good intentions, but still like terrible. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Christianity was the official religion of early Russia because they allowed drinking. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to choosing a religion, it's important to keep your priorities straight. Prince Vladimir of Kiev did just that when he selected Christianity as a state religion because it didn't ban booze. According to the Primary Chronicle, a history of East Slavic tribes written in the 12th century, various religions, religious leaders came to Vlad's court to present their religions for his perusal. His specific reason for rejecting Islam was that drinking is the joy of the Russes. We cannot exist without that pleasure. He eventually settled on Christianity, which remains the most popular religion in Russia today. I mean, thus, they do drink a lot of wine. The fight over alcohol gave us everything good and bad about the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> the unintended consequences of Prohibition ushered in some of the most romanticized figures of the 1920s. Got the bootlegger, the flapper, the gangster. And then when America went dry, the crime and chaos of the underground alcohol scene flourished. Social and sexual ner- norms eased and people began to shed the stiff skin of the Victorian age. As the Great Depression hit, politicians were forced to understand the legalization of alcohol meant the taxation of alcohol. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Like, the government realized, oh, man, we need the money of the taxes of booze because it's like sin taxes. Cigarettes and alcohol, people are going to buy them, so might as well tax them. That's why I don't understand dry counties. Like, just get the tax money. I don't understand. Usually in dry counties, there's some license available and i know in mina all the churches bought them up <laughs> they were like like the four biggest churches bought all of the liquor license until finally a few of the restaurants challenged them on it and eventually they won out so now in mina it's still drug county but now there's like a few restaurants that actually have uh alcohol now at least beer what, that happens a lot that's what happened in cabot Mm-hmm. The church has bought it all. Like I grew up, Mountain Home was a like the only wet area. Everybody else was around us dry, but it's like you just drive however long to get to it. It's crazy. But I mean, Texas, you can get alcohol after no beer and wine after noon on Sundays. But Arkansas was like not at all. Yeah, it's wild. No alcohol 
or liquor stores on Sundays. I mean, you still get yeah. it at a restaurant, but no liquor store. Yeah, I saw it was trending on Twitter one day. Somebody came to Texas and they were like, what fresh hell is this shit? It's Sunday. Why can't I get anything? And people were like, oh, man, bless your heart. You've never been to the South. <laughs> it was really funny. And I'm like, I guess if you've never been you know, on a Sunday in the South, you don't understand the yeah. plight. Is, uh, you got to stock up on Saturday or... You know. Or find somebody that's in the military you can get on base because you can buy it on Sundays on base. Yeah. Uh, I, I can see the point of the dry county. Like, I know a lot of the concerns was, like, to limit drunk driving. If you're going to have a bar and people are going to be drinking there and then driving home and stuff. I know that was a big concern for a couple of places. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to drive an hour, an hour and a half to get it, then I have to drive all the way back. So mm-hmm. it's it's a tough tough choice. Yeah, my mom, I think it was a cousin, went on a trip to get alcohol outside the city limits, and then he ended up dying in a car accident because they started drinking on the way back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was uh, really rough. It happens a lot. It's really sad. Anyway, okay. back to yeah. Let's bring it back. Ah, we're going to end it with one of my favorite stories. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm reading a lot of this came from HowStuffWorks.com because I just liked how they worded it. It was really funny. So you're on board the Mayflower, kicking back with your fellow separatists over a pint of beer. You and other crew members marvel at the bad luck that has befallen your voyage thus far. One of your ships sprang a leak and barely left England. And then you had to move everything to the remaining boat, the sturdy old Mayflower. And then it was storm season. Rough seas delayed your journey even more. So two months later, just as you catch your first glimpse of new continents, you find that November is the worst time to arrive and begin planting new crops. To make matters worse, your ship actually needs to keep sailing south because the land that you've spied is not the tract your group is authorized to colonize. It has not been a good year, 1620, and it's about to get worse. You catch wind of the news so terrible that it makes you shiver in your britches. The ship's stores of beer have dwindled. You, sir, are running out of the good stuff. Shortly thereafter, the captain makes a quick decision. Latitude be damned. It's time to dock this ship and canvas new land. The passengers in service can seek out water, hopefully to make more beer. Meanwhile, the crew is just going to stay on the ship and drink the rest of the beer. (laughs) It may sound difficult to believe, but this is all true. With the beer supply running low, the Mayflower captain decided to land at Plymouth Rock rather than sailing further south where they were supposed to go and winter there. They cut off the supply to the passengers just to leave more beer for the crew. Uh, Beer, it seems, is Americans' founding beverage. So much so that one passenger, William Bradford, complained that he and other passengers, quote, were hastened to shore to to drink water that seamen might have the rest of the beer. (laughs) End quote. And even though pilgrims discovered clean streams ashore, they were suspicious of the New World liquid <laughs> and not altogether fond of its taste. How fucked up is that? Your water is so nasty in England that you come over here and you get fresh water and you're like, oh, it tastes bad. It's because it's not polluted. You get used to it. <laughs> it seems the long voyage that made beer consumption a necessity would have a long-term effect one that would give pilgrims quite a penchant for the brew. Even the children drink beer. You know. <laughs> <That's terrible. laughs> 
<laughs> Although it was weaker version than we experienced today, ship's beer, as it was known, did not have as high of alcohol content. Mm-hmm. They were just kind of made as a way to create a water that wouldn't kill you, that would last on a ship for months. So, you know, because water was poison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's more tomatoes for the rich. It just... Uh, water became contaminated and it was a whole germy affair. Beer, on the other hand, could be stored and ingested for weeks and months without ill effect, making it the beverage of choice for a long German Germany journey. <laughs> it's the Germany. <laughs> that's my segment. Full that's circle. A good, that's a good way. That's a good way to end that. <laughs> Germany. Oh, but it just cracks me up. They're just water is so fucking nasty. Though they're just like, oh, if we can't drink it, it's bad. I was reading a book. Um, it's a time traveling book, and there's vampires and stuff. And when he drinks someone's blood, he only had to drink a little bit. But when he does, and back in that time, almost everyone was drunk. And so, like, they have to continue the mission. And she's like, are you drunk? He's like, just a little. <laughs> it's like, they don't drink water here. Like, they, I love how he made a comment. It's like a historical book about a girl traveling in time. It's really fun. Oh, that's really fun. It's like oh, tipping fate is what it's called. I was wondering if you time travel, would you really want to go back to some of those times? Like everything's trying to kill you. The water's poisoned. Uh, she couldn't control it. That's the thing. Oh, well, that's an interesting plot twist. Uh, it's supposed to be weird. Not we, but like certain people are descendants of time which is fate, uh, death, and that's the vampires, Mother Earth, and that are, that are shapeshifters. And there's one more. Oh, the seers. So that is fate. So we have time, fate, death, and one other. And no, not quite like Outlander. because I was thinking it. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> they're... What it is, is so there's not many time travelers because they get they can get lost in time. They have to either hold something that helps their power or they draw spirals, symbols. And sometimes they can create them or sometimes they can just, um, or they're left behind by a different traveler. Anyways, so a girl stumbles on them and she ends up going back in time. And it's, I think the first book is uh, Jack the Ripper. And then like the other time is like Anne Boleyn or Ooh. somebody. I can't remember exactly, so don't quote me, but it is, but each time she goes back is an actual historical event. You're speaking my nerd love language right now. <laughs> my favorite. And, <laughs> and, well, and the, the book is, each book, they jump back and forth. So even though time time is always passing, so like she'll jump back, and then when she comes back, that same amount of time, let's say when she was gone, like two weeks in the past, two weeks have gone by in the future too. So it just matches. It's the same date. Oh, that's um, interesting. That is unlike Outlander. <laughs> and so each book is is jumping back and forth. So they go back. They have to settle this. And when they come back, they realize, oh, my gosh, this has changed. And so they're just jumping back and forth because they have to help stuff. It's really good. So, yeah, first one's Tempting Fate. Sounds right in my alley. It really is. <sighs> Why doesn't my family have some weird top secret awesome shit like we can time travel or witches or I know. a secret millionaire? That would be very helpful right now. 
(laughs) (laughs) My friend uh, had a dream that my mom specifically won $11 million. Like, like, it's really weird, specific number. And mom's like, can that dream come true, please? Like, please tell me that's a prediction. (laughs) Okay, so the first one is Marking Time. The second book is Tempting Fate. Oh, okay. Oh, man. Well, thank you guys for listening and hanging out again. Mm-hmm. You're just really fun. I'm digging the live shows, y'all. I do, too. I like seeing the comments. It's really fun to uh, see what you guys are thinking as we're talking instead of wondering what you guys are thinking when we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so if you want to join us with our live shows and do all the other cool stuff the Patreon does, go to patreon.com slash historicalafpod. And for other funsies, of course, our social media, which is Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And that's also Historical AF Pod. And, and of course, we all need stories. Yep. Oh, yes. So many. So many stories we need. I do enjoy them so much. I know. Maybe a little <laughs> too zealous, but, you know, I think enthusiasm is always, it's always good. It's appreciated. <laughs> Definitely. And, that's uh, is that Historical AF pod at gmail.com yes yes perfect please send us stuff and it can be just whatever story you want to share or this is my hometown can you find something cool about it we're down for anything yeah we'll look it up for you there's no shame in our our game we'll we'll look it up and we're shameless yeah and uh if you like us you know tell people about us that helps Uh, we're almost at a year help us get to a certain some number i don't know what's a good number for a year i don't even know i have no idea i don't even know (laughs) what number we are now Uh, we're almost at thirty thousand. Oh, hot damn (laughs) i need cake (laughs) oh let me look up right now i think it's we're really really maybe get to 35 by our year I think so. We could if you guys tell everybody you know, scream it to random strangers. <laughs> <laughs> it, enthusiasm is appreciated, but I mean, we do talk about death and murder. So you yelling at someone's face about our stuff, and then we're like, cannibalism. It might be a turn off. <laughs> uh, we're at 29.6 thousand all right. time. 29.6 thousand. Wow. Well, almost yeah, the almost there doing doing pretty good doing pretty good goals we demand numbers (laughs) yeah i know we're doing pretty well i'm pretty i'm pretty proud um so if you're any of our newer listeners welcome welcome i've been kind of stalking people on twitter that like things that we like and then i follow you and then you start listening and then you're like hey so that's how that's been going hey stalker hey hey. (laughs) i'm like you like the same things we do we're going to be friends. You have no yeah. choice. <laughs> yeah, I think 35000 is achievable. We could go viral. I don't know how that works, but that'd be cool. That is like yelling at two people at the same time. <laughs> Mama needs to buy a bed and breakfast. Let's go viral. <laughs> I know, and I need an art studio. Yes. Oh, man. I'm still, I'm still trying to like copy people that went viral. I'm like, how do they do this? But they could afford a bed and breakfast. Goddamn. <laughs> Shit. <It's> expensive. 
Hi, new friend. <laughs> cool dog. Oh, man. All right. We got to go to bed. We're delirious. Yeah. Good night. Good night. Bye, guys. See you so much. Bye. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye, Zs.